When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Was it a threat or a promise or just an old movie line? Hasta la vista. Baby, thank you. Older people know that that was Arnold Schwarzenegger's most famous line from the film The Terminator. It translates as, see you again. But life is not a movie. As a big-time politician, Johnson is probably gone. But one of his closest advisers, a former whiskey salesman turned lord turned minister, is very much around. More on that in a moment. For, as the defenestrated PM worked his notice period, the race to succeed him was entering its long, final phase. Sunak, 137. Truss, 113. Well, there it is. Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak. Sunak Truss has been cast as an ideological struggle. It is, if you like, the battle of ideas for the direction of the Conservative Party. Is it more... Sunak's place in the final two seemed like a surish thing from the beginning. He was always ahead. But Liz Truss's chances changed radically during an aggressive campaign characterised by infighting and sniping. Some of it from a power broker you've probably never heard of. David to his mates, Baron Frost of Allenton to you and me. To be clear, I think a, a lot of people have very kindly said to me they hope I might come back. I was going to, to come on to that. And um, well, that's obviously a, a decision for the next Prime Minister. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the fight for the soul of the Conservative Party and the rise of the Frosties. The first TV debate between the final two contenders is tonight. They'll then spend the next five weeks campaigning for votes. Five things I think we need from the next uh, Prime Minister, next Conservative leader. First of all, somebody who properly understands what has happened over the last few years and why it happened. Unnoticed by the general public, Lord Frost is a leading figure in the attempt to create a faction which will in turn bring a new ideological vigour to a Conservative Party that, to some, appears exhausted by 12 years in power. So today, we're tracing his story. First, cast your mind back just two weeks. 
Let's uh, have a look at tomorrow's front pages. Penny Mordaunt pushing Liz Truss into third place, rattling her rivals. It's easy to forget, but at the beginning of the Tory leadership contest, a different candidate seemed to have the momentum. The Times predicts she may even be the ultimate victor of the contest. In those distant days of mid-July, polls of Tory members found Penny Mordaunt had the most support. Pennies in heaven is the headline on the Metro front page. All of the momentum going with Penny Mordaunt. But then... Let's talk to our next guest, Lord Frost. David Frost is a former Brexit chief negotiator. You have worked with Penny Morden. What do you make of her as a potential Prime Minister? Yeah, so I have worked with, with, with Penny. I'm, to be honest, I'm quite surprised that she is where she is in this leadership race. I'm sorry to say this, that I felt she did not master the detail that was necessary. Sometimes I didn't even know where she, she was. I had to ask the Prime Minister to move her on. That Do you then therefore think she'd be up to the job of being Prime Minister? From the basis of what I saw, I'm afraid I would have grave reservations about that. And with that, they all piled in. The knives seem to be out. Lord David Frost, not being very nice about her this morning, says he has grave reservations about her. For the male, Mordaunt became public enemy number one. It was the beginning of the end for HMS Mordaunt. She'd been torpedoed. Tory leadership hopeful Penny Mordaunt is down on sport among her fellow MPs. And Lord Frost also encouraged others to get out of the way for his favoured candidate, Liz Truss. Liz Truss backer Lord Frost urging candidate Kemi Badenoch to stand down and back the Foreign Secretary instead. He even seemed to offer Badenoch a job in a Truss cabinet. Penny Mordaunt's team blamed Truss and her supporters for forcing their candidate out of the race through dirty tricks. I'm afraid I think it's dirty tricks. If it had got grave concerns, why didn't you mention it before? Charges the Truss camp denied. Then... The pennies dropped, reads the Metro, as Trade Minister Miss Mordaunt is eliminated from the race. So how did a former technocrat become an ideologically driven kingmaker? The Frost story and the various sliding doors moments along the way might show us how the Conservative Party got to this point and where it's heading. What this is, is a fight for the future ideology of the Conservative Party and you have two very different visions between Rishi Sunak and his trust. Oliver Wright is policy editor of The Times and through his Brexit coverage, our Frost Watcher-in-Chief. There is no doubt which vision Lord Frost has, both for the Conservative Party and for the country post-Brexit. I think it would be quite interesting to trace the arc of his career, Lord David Frost, from whatever it is that he was to having been described very recently by the main editor of Conservative Homicide as having cult-like status within the party. So David Frost is in some ways an unlikely political hero. His career began 
in the civil service, which is at least notionally neutral and independent when it comes to politics. And he was a he was a diplomat at one stage early on in his career. He was seen as a possible permanent secretary in the foreign office. He was made ambassador to Denmark. But for some reason, that sort of career trajectory to the top faded. His career stuttered, as it were. I mean, talking to people during the latter part of his career, they said he just wasn't quite the person who was ever going to be Britain's top diplomat. He was sort of second tier. He might make it to the head of the embassy in a sort of mid-ranking country, but he would never be ambassador to Washington or ambassador to China. Did you get the impression from the people saying that, that that was a sort of, I don't know, foreign office snobbery, or that that was an absolutely genuine, cold assessment of his abilities? I think there's always a bit of snobbery in the foreign office, even if it's a genuine assessment. I mean, the way one person described it to me a few years ago was he wasn't someone who had presence in a room, as if that was some sort of damning indictment of his personality. (laughs) I think there was snobbery towards him. He wasn't a sort of elite public school. He was seen as a bit nerdy. He didn't have perhaps the charisma that they looked for. He didn't represent Her Majesty's government uh, in quite the way in which they felt that someone who rose to the rank of the Foreign Office should do. So I think he was a bit of an outsider, and I think he suffered for that. And we might come on to this, but he might have been feeling a bit resentful because of it? Quite possibly. It's hard to find people that were close to him at that period in his career, but certainly people who worked alongside him said he was a bit of an outsider. Although, you know, interestingly, none of them really knew about his political views at that point. Right. And then he makes the decision to leave the civil service, which is always a big thing if you're a big person within the civil service. And you, you've made your career in there. But he decides, actually, I, I'm now going to do better outside. Yeah, he takes a job with the Trade Association, the Scotch Whiskey Association, running that, which might seem very odd, but it is a job that has always gone to a former diplomat. They see those kind of skills of smoozing, being used to different countries, being able to take Britain and market it abroad as being really quite important. But the odd thing about Frost is it was normally seen as a job that was given to someone at the very end of their civil service career, someone in their kind of early 60s. But Frost got it much younger than that, which some people thought was was strange that he'd given up on the civil service and had basically gone off to what they saw as a bit of a sinecure. Oh, so it it was supposed to be a kind of comfortable twilight job for somebody who didn't mind having a tipple and being sociable about whiskey. Exactly. And then something happens, doesn't it? Take us through that something. Then Brexit happens, effectively, or should I say the, um, the referendum on EU membership. And this is where Frost ignited his political views. Now, as he puts it, when he was in the Foreign Office, he had a very different set of views than most of his colleagues, and he had become convinced that Europe was holding Britain back. And when the referendum was called, he felt that he wanted to play a part in that and contacted the Vote Leave campaign. Meanwhile, across town at the Hilton on Park Lane... Well, thank you very much. You're a fantastic organisation, and this is a fantastic part of our economy. Liz Truss was speaking at a dinner for the Food and Drink Federation. My colleague Danny Finkelstein would describe it as one of the best speeches against Brexit. There are some people in this room who said to me, yes, we are concerned about this, but... We don't necessarily want to take a position. 
But I do think it's in all of our interest to communicate the real impact on the ground about just how difficult it would become to do business. We've got to be very careful about taking that single market for granted. Flash forward to 2022 and whether because of a change of mind or something else like ambition, trust is now an ardent lever. Anyway, back to Frost. Yeah, he didn't have a hugely public role in that campaign, but behind the scenes, he was seen by the campaign as a really important person to have on board because here was a former foreign office official who had worked in Brussels, no less, saying, actually, I think we should leave. So, you know, the intellectual heft that Frost, even though he was no longer part of Whitehall, brought to the campaign was important. So we have him as this important figure for the Leave campaign because of what he represents. So what happens to him after the Brexit vote? Well, it's during the Leave campaign that he comes into contact with Boris Johnson for the first time. Now, you then move on a little bit and Theresa May becomes Prime Minister. And perhaps surprisingly, she tries to unite the party by appointing Boris Johnson as her Foreign Secretary. And Johnson thinks, actually, this is rather a good idea. Let's bring in David Frost as one of my special advisors. So not a civil servant, but a political appointee into the Foreign Office, keeping the Foreign Office sort of Brexit pure. So from really being on the periphery, having been in the Scotch Whiskey Association, he is then brought right back into the centre of the government, working directly for Boris Johnson. So he's a kind of super spad at this point. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Now, as Boris Johnson moves on, so does David Frost move on with him. Uh, Take us through that. Yes. So, you know, obviously in 2019... Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister, and he has already expressed huge criticism of the way in which the civil service have negotiated Brexit, in particular, Ollie Robbins, who was Theresa May's chief Brexit negotiator. And there was a feeling that the machine had taken control of Brexit and, they would put it, betraying the original mandate of the British people. So in quite an unusual move, Johnson decided that he was going to appoint David Frost as the government's chief Brexit negotiator, even though he was a political appointment rather than a civil servant. And that was unusual? Certainly the civil service felt it was unusual. I mean, arguably, it was quite a sensible thing to do because Brexit was fundamentally a political process. I think one of the problems that the government faced under Theresa May was that there were sort of two parallel processes going on. One is what the officials were trying to do in terms of getting a Brexit deal and the advice that they were giving to the Prime Minister. And secondly, there was the political process within the Conservative Party and slightly never the twain shall meet. They weren't entirely sure what the British position was. And I think when Frost came in, he made it very clear what the parameters of a future deal would be. Off the table was this idea that the UK might remain part of the single market. Off the table was this idea that Britain might be remembered of the customs union. So when you set those broad parameters, you could start working out where a deal was possible. So by appointing Frost as the chief Brexit negotiator, Boris Johnson was making a statement saying the politicians are in charge. This was a political matter that needed to be led by someone who had political authority. And now... Interestingly, if you talk to people on the European side during those negotiations, they did have a grudging respect for Frost. Now, you were talking to David Frost and meeting with him sometimes during this period. Did you get the impression that he regarded himself as more of a politician 
than as a civil servant or more as a civil servant than a politician? I think he regarded himself as someone who was there to do what politicians wanted. I'm not sure at that stage that he saw himself as a politician in his own right. But I think at that stage in his career, he was very much Johnson's person. Johnson trusted him. He trusted Johnson. I think the development of Frost's own ideology came a little further down the track. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Arifa, but Boris Johnson is not renowned for being a disciplined political thinker. Maybe this is unjust. Did you get the impression that Frost was taking his cue from Boris Johnson's instincts or that Boris Johnson was beginning to take his position from what it was that David Frost was saying to him? I think I would veer towards the latter, but I also think the person who at this stage was pretty vital in this was Dominic Cummings and his vision of what Brexit should be. And, you know, this was before the famous and spectacular fallout between Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson. At that stage, all three of them were on the same page. And, you know, certainly Frost was very highly regarded by Cummings in the same way as he was by Johnson. There was a team there. Now, that team is obviously utterly fractured, but it's worth remembering that, you know, it wasn't always thus. Now, one of the things that marks uh, Frost's movement between a quasi-civil service role and a quasi-politician's role, of course, is that he is ennobled. Yes, and he was ennobled in order to allow him to become a sort of full-time Brexit minister. Now, last autumn, Frost was in position, and it seemed to me that what he was saying in speeches became firstly increasingly strident, and secondly, became increasingly about broader politics. Did you think you noticed something similar? Yes. If you do go back and look at what he was saying, he was trying to construct a more coherent political philosophical message which went beyond Brexit about what Britain should be in the future, what values it should have, what policies it should pursue beyond its relationship with with Europe. And I think that's a fair comment. How would you characterise the ideological position that Frost was beginning to adopt? I think you have to also see it in the light of COVID and the other great debate, which was the extent to which the state was right to dictate what people should and shouldn't do. We slipped in, in a way, to lockdown. First, the Chinese did it, and everyone said in the UK, oh, it'd never happen here. And then COVID spread particularly to Italy, and then Italy locked down. And this was an anathema to many on the Tory right. But at that point in time, they really weren't able to to say anything. But as, you know, the pandemic progressed, those voices became louder. And Frost was one of those voices. And he believed the government needed to open up the country, allow people to take personal choice, personal responsibility, and that the government's approach to COVID was wrong. And it was really where he started to speak out in areas which were otherwise not his area of expertise, and indeed why he was brought into government in the first place. But he also began adding other little things like the commitment to net zero as part of his portfolio around about then. Yeah, he began to address what you would normally see as the conservative right. In late November last year, Frost addressed a Margaret Thatcher conference at the Centre for Policy Studies. 
um, if you'd please uh, take your seats and come to order and all that sort of thing. No, it's not a cosplay event where they all dress up as her, Okay, They get together and talk about her legacy. Thanks, Robert. Thanks to the CPS for putting on such an incredibly intellectually rich conference. Frost was not just a speech about Brexit. It was essentially a prospectus for a post-Brexit Britain starting right now. Frost's argument was that to truly benefit from its new status, Britain needed to diverge significantly from the EU. There had to be much less regulation, much more competition. There had to be low taxes. The sort of argument you now hear from Liz Truss. Truss is very much on the same page as Frost in terms of this idea that the UK should become Singapore on Thames. What Brexit means for the future, it depends on whether we can seize these opportunities. His listeners might have thought this agenda was already in good hands. After all, in government... My job is to try and drive change within government, to push policy in the right direction, to overcome the forces of entropy, of laziness, of vested interest. Then three weeks later, he resigned, leaving the task of overcoming the forces of laziness, etc., to someone else. No one's ever worked out definitively why he did it. I think one of the elements to it, certainly, was the question of Northern Ireland. Frost wanted Johnson to take a much tougher line on Northern Ireland than Johnson was prepared to do. There was a split between those who said, look, we just got to keep on talking to the EU, we've got to get a compromise. And there were those like Frost who said, no, we're not going to get a compromise that is acceptable by talking. We have got to show that we are prepared to take unilateral action. And Johnson was very leery about that to begin with. And so this was going on in the background. I think there have been a number of quite significant disagreements within Johnson's top team, as it were. That was one of the elements that precipitated Frost's departure alongside his disagreements about COVID. Now... The other thing that interests me about this is his job was not fulfilled. We still hadn't resolved the question of the Northern Arm Protocol, which he was doing a lot of work on. He goes out in the fashion traditionally associated with somebody who has got a plan as to what he's going to do afterwards. In other words, either I'm going to stand for the leadership or I'm going to be the banner waver for a significant part of the party in a new world of politics that I anticipate. How did you read that? I think he had left government and he realised that he needed to create a power base, remain relevant. That is what he has attempted to do. So he has a column in The Telegraph once a week, which is a platform for him to use. He has become a figurehead of a certain section of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, perhaps best characterised as sort of members of the European Research Group, the ERG of Brexiteers, because he has kudos amongst that group for having negotiated what they would see as the right kind of deal with the EU. Now, the other thing to bear in mind is there's been a lot of talk about him trying to get a parliamentary seat. And I think that is certainly true. That is something that he would like to do. So he'd like to leave the House of Lords and enter Parliament as an MP 
in his own right. But that's easier said than done. You know, if he stands in a by-election, given the party's performance at the time being, the chances are that he's going to be you know, roundly defeated and therefore probably best not to stand. But I think you know, it is about making himself relevant and reigniting his political career. Coming up, if the leadership contest goes his way, will Frost be back around the cabinet table? And might he harbour his own dreams of leadership? That's in just a moment. I'm Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent for The Times. It's you who enables me to report from some of the most volatile environments in the world. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, one of the observations one might make is that what Frost is attempting is a sort of ideological reawakening within the Conservative Party. That's really difficult in a party that's been in power for 12 years and will have been in power for 14 years by the time of the next election. It's a hard question to answer this, Ollie, but would you say that his attempt to create that coherent position was bearing fruit or wasn't? I think there's still a lot of uncertainty because clearly it depends on who wins the race ultimately between... Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak in the final runoff with party members. But, you know, certainly if you look at the polls, you would assume that if they don't change in the next few weeks, Liz Truss will be in Downing Street on September the 6th. And Frost was one of her early backers. He's a significant backer. She listens to him. She speaks to him. And I would imagine that if you were Frost, you would imagine that you're going to be back around the cabinet table before too long. And his views, his influence are going to be important. And I think that is significant both in terms of you know the direction of the Conservative Party and the government over the next two years in the run-up to an election. Last week, the day after the candidates were whittled down to the final two, Rishi Sunak wrote an article in The Telegraph into which he managed to get seven mentions of Margaret Thatcher. He said, I am a Thatcherite. I am running as a Thatcherite and I will govern as a Thatcherite. Meanwhile, Lord Frost and his chosen candidate, Liz Truss, were claiming Thatcher for their side. Mrs Thatcher also believed in growth, she believed in reform, she believed in change. What the Liz campaign is saying, given where the economy is at the moment, is reversing the tax increases that we brought in is the right thing to do. Everybody wants to be Thatcher in the Conservative Party and often they mischaracterise what Thatcher was actually like. I mean, on both sides, you know, it's pointed out that early on in her premiership, Thatcher didn't cut taxes. It was actually only latterly that she 
move towards this tax-cutting agenda. Now, Sunak said he is a Thatcherite because this is what Thatcher did. She got the economy on a sound footing and then used the benefits of that to cut taxes. Liz Truss would say, well, actually, the tax-cutting itself is what gave the economy a huge boost. Others would say that even if you replicated the policies of Thatcher, the times are very different. Thatcher had huge revenues coming into the Treasury from North Sea oil and gas. She had a baby boomer generation and you didn't have the same pressures of an ageing population that you have now. And they say that, you know, it's all very well to talk about being Thatcherite, but the problems that the UK face now can't be dealt with with solutions that were viable in the 1980s. All right, Liz Truss started this phase of the campaign with something of an attack on experts, which feels very much in line with Frost thinking. We have had a consensus of the Treasury, of economists, of the Financial Times, of other other outlets peddling a particular type of economic policy for the last 20 years. Well, here's another and conversion from you back to it hasn't, when you were Chief Secretary of the Treasury. It hasn't delivered growth. Fascinating to hear her say, wasn't it, that governments and economists over the last 20 years have been following the wrong economic policies when you consider that her party has been in power for the last 12 of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And she believes that. But I thought... The interesting thing of her attack on economic orthodoxy almost had echoes of Michael Gove's attack on experts during the Brexit referendum campaign. And I think that was entirely deliberate. She is running an insurgent revolutionary campaign to become leader. She wants to contrast herself with the staid orthodoxy of Sunak. And an attack on experts in that way is an attempt to play into that. Speaking of insurgents, I see Dominic Cummings has tweeted to say the shopping trolley, and by that he means Boris Johnson, um, and I quote, is supporting the human hand grenade, Liz Truss, because the trolley knows she's mad as a box of snakes and thinks she'll blow up and he can make a comeback. What do you make of that? He has a way with words. I don't think she's mad. And I actually don't think Cummings thinks she's mad. Some might say what she was proposing in terms of policy in areas was mad, but it doesn't mean that it's not perfectly legitimate. I think Cummings himself could be regarded as a bit of a hand grenade, or indeed quite a lot of a hand brigade, and one should take a bit of what he says with a pinch of salt. Tory members are going to get their ballot papers next week, and party insiders say they usually vote early. So even though we've got five weeks of this campaign left, could it all actually be decided in the next 10 days or so? That's the fear in the Sunak campaign. They know they have a mountain to climb amongst the members. That if you look at all the polls, trust is ahead by quite a margin. And if you look back at 2019, most Conservative members filled in their ballot paper pretty much straight away. And that was that. There is a slight wrinkle, which is different from the last time, which is members can return their ballot paper by post voting for a certain candidate. But then if they change their mind, they can re-vote online And it's the online vote that will count rather than the postal ballot. And I think that could be important if, as they say, events take place over the next month. If something happens that makes people question one of the candidates or change their mind, then you could see people bothering to go online and change their vote. So you really think that Liz Truss, if she's successful and becomes the new Prime Minister when she goes to the polls in one or two years' time, could equal or improve on Boris Johnson's vote. Can she win a convincing majority? Absolutely, we can do that. 
When the announcement of the final two contenders was made in a Westminster committee room last week, one CNN reporter overheard a Tory MP leaving the room saying, we've just lost the next election. And in that event, if another vacancy at the top of the Tory party opened up, what next for Frost? He showed that he is a politician, so anyone who's a politician does it because ultimately they hope that they can be in charge of the levers in power, at least a large majority of people. If he does stand as a candidate at the next election and becomes an MP, he will be an important figure, particularly if the party is in opposition. You could see him standing for the leadership, although I think that's a bit of an outside chance, but never entirely rule it out. And you're not betting that he sees it that way? (laughs) No. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times policy editor Oliver Wright. You can find all of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. And for all the latest on the race to be the next PM, why not try John Pienaar's Drive Time programme on Times Radio every weekday afternoon from 4 till 7. You can listen on DAB, in the Times Radio app, or on your smart speaker. The producer was James Shield, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. See you tomorrow.